Good evening, and thank you for joining us for this conversation on creating a culture of innovation in America's schools. My name is Tressa Pankovitz. I am Associate Director of the Reinventing America Schools Project housed at the Progressive Policy Institute, where we promote a model of schools that we like to call 21st century models of education, century school systems. By that we mean schools that give parents more choice, give schools more autonomy, all in exchange for higher standards of accountability. Joining me here tonight is David Osborne, the director of the Reinventing America Schools Project at PPI. And we are also very pleased to welcome our three panelists. They are Mariama Shahid, who is the co-founder and CEO of Global Prep Academy in Indianapolis, Indiana. We also have Pedro Martinez, who is superintendent of the San Antonio Independent School District. And Chris Gavrielli, who is the co-founder and CEO of Empower Schools. And you'll be hearing from all of them very shortly. So the 21st century schools that we are going to talk about tonight have several different names. Some are called partnership schools and other places they're called Renaissance schools. At PPI, we like to call them innovation schools, which, which is what they're known as in Indiana, uh, Indianapolis, Indiana. So the models are different from place to place, but um, they share a lot in common and most specifically that they have autonomy. They are all independent schools housed in school districts, but rather than being governed by the school district board, they have their own boards of directors. These school districts, about 20 of them across the country, many urban, but some rural, have taken the leap of faith to move beyond the agrarian and industrial era model of schools which feature centralized top-down bureaucracy that dictates what the neighborhood schools do and how they teach. Instead, these schools, while they are part of districts housed in district buildings, are governed by their own nonprofit boards, and those boards have control. They hire and select the school leaders. The school leaders select and hire the school personnel. The schools determine the calendar, the length of the year and the day. They, they pick the curriculum and the teaching instructional methodologies. They even choose the model of school that they're going to run, whether it's something like a Montessori or a STEM-focused school or perhaps an arts-integrated school. And this can help give districts a richer uh, portfolio of schools for parents to choose from. Now, of course, in exchange for all that freedom, there is heightened accountability. And this comes in the form of a contract with the school district. The school district the school district contracts with the nonprofit to operate the schools. And those contracts are, are um, designed to have clear performance metrics. So the school operators coming in know exactly what the district expects of them to do, whether it's raising test scores or there's attendance benchmarks or graduation benchmarks. It's negotiated between the district and the school. And if the, if the school operator doesn't meet those goals at the end of the contract, this, the district can terminate and, and find a new operator. So you might say, well, that sounds kind of like a charter school. And in a way it does, but in a lot of ways it doesn't. As we've been doing this research, meaning David and I, we've come to see some distinct advantages to innovation schools um, that we'd like to talk about a little bit, including the fact that because the district 
contracts with the school, the district can control where the school sits. So it's the district's building, the district can pick this building or that building, and that gives the district control over seats, which means the district can better control over capacity and ensure that it's not creating more classroom seats and it actually has students to fill. Um, this also gives the district an opportunity to say, hey, our district's a little light on STEM schools. We're gonna find an operator that really does STEM and does STEM well, or whatever is missing from its portfolio of, of schools that will give parents enhanced choice. Um, Another thing, because the uh, schools are part of the district for um, accountability purposes, the test scores count. Uh, in Indianapolis, the innovation schools are the fastest improving schools in the district and their test scores have pulled the district test scores up. And a similar story in Camden, New Jersey, where reading proficiency quadrupled in the district's 11 Renaissance schools and doubled in math proficiency in just the first four years of the model. They saw, they've seen similar results in Denver, where the um, innovation zone schools there serve about 10% more minority free and reduced lunch eligible and English language learner students. In spite of that, the, the, the innovation zone schools uh, test scores are about the same as the districts, and they actually beat the districts in the um, academic, academic gaps achiever, which is how the district measures how well schools are serving their um, marginalized population. Which brings me to the most important part of this, and that is increasing educational opportunity and equity for low income and minority children. David first published on innovation schools in 2018, and when he saw how well they were working, he got the idea that RAS should create a guide uh, for influencers, advocates, and legislators as to how do you go about doing this? I mean, if this sounds appealing, how do, where do you begin? How do you start? What are the steps? Well, we never imagined that this guide would be published in the middle of a pandemic that has so starkly exposed the weaknesses in our traditional public school systems or did we imagine that we, we would be publishing this guide at a time when racial injustice would refocus the national conversation on the need to reform antiquated systems, including our school systems? So today we are pleased to announce the publication of the third way, a guide to implementing innovation schools. It is available on PPI's website. And Sloan, do we have that slide? There it is. So there's a sneak peek of the uh, of the cover of the guide, and you can see the website right there, progressivepolicy.org. And if you'll go on that right now, it's on the home page, and uh, it's also on the Reinventing America Schools page. And uh, you can share, you can download it, you can share it, you can tweet about it, and we're even gonna. Uh, produce a hard copy of it. If you'd like to keep one on your nightstand, just reach out to us and we'll get one to you. And with that, I am going to turn it over to David Osborne and let him get into the substance of, of the matter with our panelists who are all on the ground doing this important work um, in various capacities. David. Thank you, Tressa. Uh, the first thing that we'd like to do is get a sense of the audience. So we've got a little survey. Um, Sloan, if you could put it on the screen. Uh, if you could indicate real quickly uh, which of these categories you identify with the most. Sometimes some of you may, you know, identify with two of them, but pick one the most. And uh, 
And uh, in a few minutes, we'll see what the results are so we can get a sense of who's out there listening and watching. Uh, I'm going to start with uh, Mariama. Um, again, she founded, Mariama Shaheed was a principal in another school district in Indianapolis. I uh, got pretty frustrated and decided to found an innovation school, a dual language immersion school called Global Preparatory Academy. Um, you've been at it now for what, three or four years? This is year five. Year five, great. Yeah. So um, tell us what it was, you know, why you chose to do this as an innovation school. So uh, thank you, David, uh, for having me here tonight. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about innovation because it's something that I, I began my career as a classroom teacher and I never expected to become a principal, let alone found a school. But what I will share is I was in a district for 17 years and was a teacher there, was an assistant principal and also was a principal. And it became pretty clear to me within those first few years of, of being a principal that I was really a middle manager of a superintendent's vision. And while that vision was great for the larger district, there were things that I saw in my immediate school community that as the school's principal, I really wasn't able to move those things forward. So I heard earlier as we kicked off, you know, that whole, the, the need for autonomy. And that was the biggest driver for why, why I created an innovation school. I enjoyed working in the district. I enjoyed working with a, a student population that was very diverse. But in the district where I work, 30% of my students were native Spanish speaking students. And I remember being so excited and going to my superintendent about this idea to create a dual language school in our district. And it was pretty quick. He let me know that's not what the district's doing. And so even though I saw a need, I wasn't able to move the needs forward in my school and the drive for autonomy when it came to programming, the kind of uh, length of school day and the calendar we'd have. And I think most importantly, the ability to select staff aligned to the mission and vision that we have for the school. Um, I know many principals who have, so who work in schools where teachers are just delivered to them and they have to work with those teachers, whether or not they're aligned to the vision or not. And knowing the kind of school that students, my child and any other child deserves to be in, I was tired of having to work around people to have the school that I knew that our community deserved and those were big drivers for why I moved away from the district, traditional district principal's position to found a school that would meet the needs of the community. Tell us about the school, tell us about your students, their demographics, what the school is like. Yeah. It's an elementary school, as I recall. Yeah. So our school, Global Preparatory Academy, sits in a very historic area of Indianapolis called Riverside, and it's a historical African-American community. Um, and we have, uh, we serve pre-K through grade six students and um, in partnership with the district, the, the beautiful thing is the vision that I always had was dual language education would be available to native Spanish speaking children, as well as African-American children who often aren't seen in dual language programs. And so being in the, the district selected building in Riverside, we have a nice mix of African-American students and native Spanish speaking students. So we're about 43% native Spanish speaking, about 48% African-American and about 9% um, Caucasian. We are about 73% free and reduced price lunch and students from pre-K through grade six have an opportunity for a dual language experience. So our teachers are native Spanish speaking teachers 
And I, you know, when I think about my district experience and being able to be creative for how we recruited teachers and how we created uh, compensation packages for teachers, those are some of the big drivers for how we have the staff that we have that's, that is extremely diverse and very reflective of the students that we serve. The other thing I'll say is being in partnership with the district as an innovation school, we are a neighborhood school first. So when you think about many magnet school programs and things like that, a certain group of families in a community get access while others don't. As an innovation school and also a neighborhood school, students who live in the Riverside community will always have a seat at Global Preparatory Academy, which means children who otherwise wouldn't have had a dual language experience have the opportunity to receive it. So how's it going so far? What kind of results are you seeing? Well, you know, we're in year five. Uh, so if I said it was going extremely well, I wouldn't be honest. But when I think about where we were to where we are, we have so much pride and appreciation for our progress. So we started when we opened, um, the school had been largely serving just that boundary community. But as an innovation school, we were able to um, open the doors to even more students. So we increased enrollment um, from 500 in that first year before we came to 650 students now. Um, so we have a large demand from students and uh, from our community. Um, and then we also have a huge increase in student performance. So when we came in, we were both a fresh start being that we had the dual language program and also a turnaround at the same time, which is a very complex way for innovation school to start. However, even within that, we had double digit gains in our first year and we've been rated an A school by the Department of Education since we opened because of growth that our students have made. And this was a chronically underperforming school that the district um, selected for, for us to be in. I'll also say we're really proud about just how well our community has responded to what we're all dealing with, which is, you know, this hybrid learning and remote learning. You know, our attendance continues to be strong, even though we have some students in the building and some students that are remote. But I think that's reflective of the work that we've done over the past four years, bringing families, our community, and our staff alongside one another to build something together that meets the needs of the community that we're serving. So while we have a long way to go, we're really proud of the work that we've done thus far and looking forward to continuing to dig in uh, in the community that we're blessed to serve. Well, that's terrific. Thank you so much. Uh, before we move on, let's look at, look at our audience. Um, as you can see, 60 set, two thirds of those uh, tuning in tonight are advocates, 10% uh, journalists, 10% administrators, 5% elected officials, 5% funders, 5% teachers. Uh, we had this, this is the first time we've done this in the evening, at least on the East Coast, it's evening, because we wanted teachers to be able to tune in. 5% um, is okay, we were hoping for more. So <laughs> we'll see you next time. All right, let's go to uh, Superintendent Pedro Martinez from San Antonio. Um, in Texas, these schools are called partnership schools. Uh, there's a state law that encourages districts to do this and gives them some incentives to do it. And you and your school board have been very active in pursuing this path. Uh, you're probably the most aggressive in the state. Uh, I think you told me the other day you have almost a quarter of your schools in partnership schools, 23 or 24 schools now. So what, 
why have your board, you and your board decided to go down this road so aggressively? What do you believe it's gonna do for the children? So for us, David, you know, one of the things that's always been our goal is to create an ecosystem of innovation, an ecosystem where um, our beliefs are very clearly shown in our schools. So for example, um, my board has always believed in autonomy, has always believed in empowering principals and teachers, that that was the, one of the recipes for success. Uh, five years ago, when I started, our district was a failing district. Um, the state was just starting to give grades and we asked the state to tell us what our grade would have been for the 15-16 school year, which was my first uh, full school year. And the state said we, we would have been an F. An F in Texas, by the way, means that uh, whether you're a school or a district, you're in the bottom 5% of the entire state. And, and so that's pretty low. And you got to remember, Texas itself is sort of an average state when it comes to academics around the country. So even when you're in an average state and you're in the bottom, bottom 5%, that's not a good place to be in, in, any, in any kind of situation. And so one of the things that we saw was uh, we had you know, these very antiquated uh, you know, processes and procedures that were holding back our staff. Uh, it was holding back attracting talent. And so for us, uh, one of the other things we saw was inequities within the state. So for example, uh, we have charter operators or independent charter operators that were getting an average of 10 to 15% more per pupil on an operating basis than school districts. So we actually, uh, we were open from the beginning to partnering with charters. And so that was something that was somewhat refreshing in San Antonio. And one of the things that we learned in this partnership was this differential in funding. So we got legislation passed, which was called 1882, House Bill 1882. It was, uh, it was one of the first uh, uh, bills in terms of academics that everybody agreed on, Democrats and Republicans. It was amazing in a red, in a red state where we said, allow districts to partner with, uh, partner with it, whether it's charters, universities, or nonprofits to create these partnership schools and give them the differential in funding. So in other words, you know, if a, if a the school district is willing to provide that kind of autonomy and provide a higher level of accountability through a performance contract, give them that funding together. So we did that. Uh, so, so we were the originators of that legislation. We now have, like you said, a fourth of our schools that are taking advantage of it. And we, what we do is we actually open it up every year to our schools. So we allow the neighborhoods and the communities to be involved. There's actually a vote. There's a vote of parents as well as staff. And it has to be at least 70% uh, of, of all registered uh, parents, as well as our students, uh, uh, parents of registered students, as well as of staff. And we've done that process for years. And even though we always have our critics, because some people, you know, you know, you know, you know, that you will always, you know, we can never make everybody happy. But I'll tell you, when it comes to the staff of that, that school or the parents of that school, um, you know, they're part of it. And so they have ownership of it. And so what has that done? That has created uh, some of the first in our county. So for example, the first uh, single gender school, uh, we had an all girls school, we made it a partnership school, and now we have a, an all girl primary school. By the way, our secondary school is one of the best in the country. Um, our girls are graduating and getting to almost any top tier one university in the country, including Stanford, including Princeton. But now we also have now a, a program that starts with kindergartners with our young ladies kindergarten through first grade, David, the, the school was so popular, I had to open up an additional three, uh, three full kindergarten classrooms. Uh, and this was, a, this was in a building that had been underutilized for years. And now just in, you know, in the younger grades, I already had a huge waiting list. And, and it, it pained me so much that I said, we're just going to renovate three more classrooms for them. And so the partnership schools we have seen 
by the way, you know, they're at different places. Some of them are top schools. Some of them are in the process of turning around low performing campuses. And what we've done in these partnership schools, first of all, all of the partners reflect our values. And it's a combination of, uh, for example, we have Democracy Prep who's helping turn around one of our highest uh, poverty schools in the district. We have the Relay Lab School who's brought in uh, some of the most interesting curriculum that now other schools are sharing in uh, to a couple of my schools that are also turn around. Then I have my innovation schools. Uh, whether it's my single gender schools, I have now uh, two early college programs where my children get associate's degrees with high school degrees um, and they're partnering with the community college as the partner. And so you have partners that are aligned in vision, they're aligned in values, but they're prom we're promoting innovation because our board is allowing them to have the autonomy to define the curriculum. They're passionate about that curriculum. So what I love is that no matter what happens to me and my board, they're going to sustain it. And because they do have their own local governing structure that's all made up from the community, you know that that ownership is going to exist. So what we have seen as a district, it's just, it's built, it, help us, it, helps, it has helped us build this ecosystem of innovation. And your partners, you said some of them are charters, but, but many of them are not charters, correct? Do you have a university, you have different kinds of partners? Yeah, what's interesting, David, is, um, you know, so like I said, our vision was to build an ecosystem. It wasn't about an initiative. It wasn't about a program, because I think so many times where many of my colleagues, you know, get tripped up is, you know, you come in as a brand new superintendent and you have all these great ideas, but it really doesn't matter because a lot of them become programs or initiatives that just really don't last, you know. And so what we said is, no, this is about changing the whole ecosystem. It's about changing the entire conversation. Uh, and so what we did is, is when we set up this legislation, we purposely opened it up and then leveraged some of the tools that the state already had. So the state already had a concept called industry charters that allowed traditional neighborhood schools to have all the autonomies of independent charter schools, So, which I love, because I said, okay, in Chicago, when I was there, we were always looking for something like that, but it was never really in legislation. In Texas, it's in legislation. And those, those industry charters get access to some of the same grant funding that outside charters do. So again, it creates a lot more of an equitable uh, uh, landscape. And so for us, you know, the partners, for example, have been like uh, high school. High school, you know, is one of the national premier entities in early childhood. Well, they partner with two of my Head Start centers. And, you know, for Head Start, you gotta be really poor to qualify. And these are some of the top early childhood centers in the state. Uh, when you look at their diagnostic data, and these are very high poverty children. And high school is the curriculum, but now they're the managing partner. And by the way, all these are co-managed schools. We all manage them together. Um, we have, like I said, our community college that has just been approved and is this fall is working with our early college programs. Uh, we have an I, uh, IB nonprofit that their whole passion, they think IB is gonna save the world. That's God bless them, that's what they feel. Well, they have eight of our IB schools because again, their mission is about, about IB. And so what's great is that every one of our partnerships has this passion for that kind of model school. And David, that's what we were looking for. Uh, and then that way, and, and really it's using these models for with access because we control enrollment in every situation, including you know democracy prep. It's access to all children, especially our children of poverty, as well as using the best practices to provide these children the best academics. So very quickly, tell us about the results so far. So I can tell you, you know, as a district, uh, we went from being an F district back in 2016. We are now, uh, based on the last year we tested, which is 1819, we were a B district. We have closed the gap when it comes to 
uh, our children getting uh, accepted into college and going to college with our county and state. We're now closing the gap on college readiness across our high schools. So uh, when you look at TSI, which is our Texas Success Initiative, similar to an Accuplacer, ACT, SAT, we've closed the gap with the state. And that is in spite of the fact that we have over 90% of our children in poverty, 97% in color, uh, color uh, and yet and the state has very different demographics. And so we still have a ways to go. We still have, a, we've cut our low performing schools. We reduced that by 70%. We still have a ways to go, but I'll tell you what is happening, David, is that we become our own lab where we're learning lessons from each other about how do, you, how do we use these models and specifically for with low, uh, high poverty children that might be severely behind. Because you know these practices have always existed. Montessori has been around forever. IB has been around forever, but they were never, uh, they were never leveraged and utilized with an equity focus and with an access focus, helping high poverty children. So that's what we're still learning. So I'll tell you, we haven't figured it all out, but I love this, the fact that we have the ecosystem. But it's impressive. Congratulations. Thank you. So we uh, we want to do another survey of the audience. Um, these schools, innovation or partnership schools can be used for different purposes, to restart a failing school, to give a healthy school more autonomy so it can go from good to great, to give a struggling school more autonomy so it can improve, to, as you've heard, to create a specialized school, a dual language immersion school, or a STEM school or a Montessori school, uh, or finally, to bring some charter schools into the district's portfolio planning. So we'd like to know in your own district, which of those different uses of, an, of innovation schools do you think would be most valuable? Just, you, can, you only can pick one, unfortunately. Uh, the software doesn't allow you to pick two. So we'll find what the results are in a few minutes. Um, I wanna turn to Chris Gabrielli, who uh, has been involved in education reform for a long time, worn many hats. Uh, the one he's wearing tonight is as the co-founder and CEO of Empower Schools which has worked with 10 different districts around the country to create innovation zones, zones of innovation schools, including Springfield, Massachusetts, Denver, South Bend, Indiana, and a series of districts in Texas, I think. Um, so Chris, tell us exactly what an innovation zone is. Absolutely, and thank you for the privilege of joining with this group. And uh, it's, it renews my enthusiasm to hear a principal like Mariama talk about her reasons for wanting it and a district leader like Pedro to talk about, you know, how to think about it as a district strategy. You know, as you said, David, we're a nonprofit organization. We've become, I think, kind of among the experts in sort of the space and can field people around the country to help when local people think it may make sense for them to pursue this. So we're always in the business of voluntary change. Every one of our zones have been approved by a vote of the board uh, of the local school district. Um, and in cases where there's uh, collective bargaining required, you know, within a, a very different contract with the union. Um, so we love local voluntary, you know, processes and we bring kind of the technical expertise. We have focused on zones, groups of schools. Our smallest zones are, well, we have one or two that literally are one school, so they're probably fake to call them a zone, but we do. But most of them are in the sort of five to, to five to a dozen school range. All of them have in common the core principles Mariama laid out, that the educators in the building, we believe schools are the unit of change, that the educators in the building uh, and the principal working together ought to be able to make the big choices that drive the change in the school. Some of these schools choose to work together in clusters. You know, you'd call an operator, you'd call it a CMO, you'd call it a network. 
you know, but with a partner to have a more consistent thing, some of them are one school at a time. As you've offered up choices to the audience, some of them are turnaround. Well, the very first one we did in Springfield was absolutely a situation like Pedro was facing. We were dealing with all very low ranked schools in Springfield, 20% of the end of all their students. Others like the work in Denver have been from local leaders who wanted greater autonomy to continue to pursue what they'd been doing as innovation individual schools um, and formed zones with local leadership from uh, the largest philanthropy in town and from community folks who wanted to see that happen. So it's really quite a range. Some of them are very innovative schools. Why? What makes them a zone is, and I think Pedro really handled this well, is that they have um, a contract with the district uh, that requires them to perform and also requires them to be a good citizen of the district. Um, and they have uh, accountability uh, terms that are very clear and they have an independent board. Sometimes that board has some members of the elected or appointed officials, but the majority um, are always independent folks. And those people you know, provide kind of a backbone for the original concept that what we're gonna focus on is how to uh, support schools to make the changes they need. One couple of last points I want to make out is one is I think is really important to see is that this can be a great opportunity. And I think again, Pedro did a nice job bringing this up for outside organizations that have can bring real new blood to a place and new ideas and new models and can help operate the schools. But it's also a great opportunity for educators from a place, I think closer to Mariama's story, who are right there, they're already ready to go. And maybe they're already district leaders and they want the chance to, to get those freedoms and they're willing to to put the accountability, you know, things on the line. And it can be both. We think, in fact, the best zones combine both. Some amount of change and fresh ideas. I love the way you described it as an ecosystem at San Pedro, but also, you know, recognizing some of the best educators and often some of the ones who've not had access to the kind of, you know, philanthropy support and other, you know, incubators and other things who are ready to go with some support, um, you know, should get that chance. So that mix. And the last thing I want to say is a good zone, and I think you captured this nicely, Tressa, when you began, is both great for the educators in that building and their opportunity, but it's also great for the district. It's not in spite of the district, it's aligned with the district. These are district schools, the district gets to count as you say, David, but gets to brag on, it's a strategy. And to do that, I love how Mariama talked about the neighborhood you know, pattern and many districts want neighborhood pattern. I like choice, I'm fine on choice, but some districts, many, especially for elementary schools want neighborhood choice. And I think you should have excellent neighborhood schools, not say, you know, you're not allowed to have good schools unless you, want to change the patterns of your community. That's important to many districts. And I think most innovation zones are, are, are set up to accommodate those reasonable goals for the district. So most of the zones you've worked with are only a year or two old now, but there are a few in Springfield, Massachusetts and in Denver that have been around for five years, roughly. Um, how are they doing? What kind of results are we seeing? Yeah, and I, you know, we're proud of the gains made at a number of the schools. Springfield's our longest standing zone. Nine schools came in at the beginning. All of them were in the bottom one or 2% of the state. Um, and while not all of them have yet reached the goals we have for them, four of them have had very notable gains. Two of them have been taken off of the state's list of schools that need to be turned around. One of them is the, probably the single most approved in accountability term state in the history of Massachusetts. It's gone from, in that case, the ninth percentile to the uh, 65th percentile. That's <laughs> It's in the upper, nearly upper third of state schools in the entire state, and it started in the ninth. Mm -hmm. um, so we're, you know, well, that shows how much can be done with it. We've made a lot of changes during that period, um, you know, by having a board that really believes in this and having a kind of, you know, to use a term that some people don't like, but I'm fine with it, portfolio approach. We've made 14 significant changes over this period of time. We have four new schools 
this fall. And part of what the zone staff does is manage those transitions, which are, need to be managed with grace with regard to teachers and leaders and communities. You know, it's not as simple as just starting a new school from scratch. Often, Mariama must have gone through this. It's like starting a school inside an existing school. There's a transition. There's a lot to manage, right? Um, but we're proud of the gains the ones have made. And we're proud of the fact that we, when the results, so we have a very transparent way of showing the results. When those results aren't there, we make the changes. Uh, in Denver, which is the second oldest zone, we're very proud of the LLN schools. They've shown gains as a group. We have some of the, uh, well, there's an exciting school called the Denver Green School as an example, which was a good school. Now I think it's an even better school. It's got to the top rankings level. It's called Blue in, in Denver. It's also been able to replicate, which is another cool use of the zone. So there are now two green zones led, you know, by essentially by one, you know, architect, but two separate campuses. Uh, another Denver school just won one of the White House point out Denver Green School is a teacher-run school. The Denver Green School is a super interesting combination of, you know, there's principles of board, but it's got a very strong teacher democracy voice. Yeah. So we, you know, look, results matter, but we believe there are a lot more ways to go at it. One last point I'd make on results, I'm glad you made that point, David, is Mariama and I were talking in a, when we met earlier on a preparatory call about how do you define success? And certainly we care about the academic scores and so does Pedro, but we also care about the enthusiasm of the community and uh, that's really high for all of these schools that are, that are on the boards uh, of schools or zones in our case. Uh, we care about teacher, both opportunities to grow and retention. We're very proud of the fact that the teachers union in Springfield voted by 93 to 7% to renew their contract after their first three years, because they saw that having more voice in their school and being paid for to work more hours was a more attractive deal than frankly they had on the other side of the line. Um, we are proud that you know Denver's renewed by unanimous vote, our first zone that came up for renewal. Like we look at a lot of measures, not just you know the academic scores, but the academic scores are critical. We need these kids to have the skills. Thank you, thank you. Before we move on, and I hand it back to Tressa, uh, let's look at the results of the second survey. Um, looks like, well, this is the first survey. Uh, we need the second one. So I can read them to you. Uh, People see the value in all these different approaches, 26%, there you go. Uh, for a couple of them, 22 for another, 13 and 13. So as you can see, there are many reasons to give public schools enough autonomy to do wonderful things that the sort of cluster of bureaucratic rules and practices that we've inherited from the past make it impossible or difficult for most public schools to do. Um, okay, I'm gonna hand this back to Tressa. Uh, it's all yours. And I am going to immediately start by asking you a question, David, and it's a question from the audience, so I wanna make sure that we get to it. Um, it's a question from Sean Gill, who wants to know if a state law is needed to create innovation schools and what are the key ways that this law would differ from a charter school law. And uh, this is your chance to plug our model legislation along with the, uh, with the guide. Um, so far, every state that's done this has a state law making it possible. Um, apparently, there are just too many rules standing in the way of doing what you have to do to do it without special permission from the state. Um, Theoretically, in an ideal world, that wouldn't be the case, but it seems to be the case in the United States of America. Uh, it's different than a charter school law because uh, these, for the reasons that the 
innovation schools are different. They're not completely independent. They can't locate where they want. They can't uh, duplicate when they want. They are part of a district. Um, so it's a way to, to get the advantages of the autonomy that works for charters and the accountability that weeds out the failures, um, but give those advantages to a district. So, so the law is a little similar, but there's a lot of differences. And as Tressa said, we have model legislation in this guide that we, we looked at Texas's law, we looked at Indiana's law, we looked at Colorado's law, we looked at the others, and we, we kind of put something together that we thought made the most sense. And we hope it can be a template that state legislators can use in other states. Thanks, David. Okay, so I want to hear um, from our panelists, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned? And I think what I'll do is I'll start at the school level, and then I'll go to the district level, and then I'll go to the overview with Chris. So, Mariama, um, what would you say is you're giving a fellow teacher or a fellow educator who's embarking upon do doing this, what would you advise? So I would advise to take the uh, to take the animal that you're trying to, to tame one bit at a time, uh, especially when you're going into a space and you have all of these ideas and everything that you want to do. Be realistic about what you can accomplish one year, one quarter at a time, and be really granular about how you're going to go about doing that. And one of the things, one of the lessons that I know I learned early on as a leader you have got to get the buy-in from the community and the people that are on the ground doing the work in order for it to work. Can you, can you share a couple of the examples of what you did that we talked about earlier for the, for the guide? Yeah, yeah, so uh, a couple things. So uh, I don't know which thing you're, you're speaking of, but there've been so many, uh, Teresa, but I'll say that one of the things when we first came into the school building, you know, we were coming into a school that had chronically been underperforming. And so when we came in, 7% of the children had passed English language arts, seven. I had never had data like that before. I'd never seen data like that before. So as ambitious educators, we initially set goals that in our first year, you know, we've got to get at least a 50%. But when you look at the school that's chronically been underperforming, we got to get real specific around how are we going to first engage the students as learners and then how do we get them bought in to what is school now? And uh, having an approach of just drill and kill and, and make sure they have these standards isn't gonna do it, but build the culture first and go slow to go fast. And um, I think when you see every, all the fire all around you, it can be uh, almost counterintuitive to go slow to go fast, but it's a critical move that, that we have to make. I'll also say in those beginning stages, not only are you uh, acculturating a new staff and also shifting the minds of the students that are there, but also the parents. So helping parents come on board to the way the new school is operating in a way that doesn't devalue them as parents or make them feel bad about the fact that they've been in a chronically underperforming school, but really changing the paradigm in terms of what does partnership look like now so that we can move forward together. Did it take a long time to build the parents' trust? Oh, certainly, certainly. I think, I think parents who, when you go into a school that's been underperforming, many parents don't know that. They just know they loved their child's teacher. So what they saw us were, well, as was the enemy coming in and removing their child's teachers and their child's principal. 
And so it was one of those things. And it didn't help that their child's teachers and principals weren't necessarily saying great things about us. <laughs> so what we had to know was we had to be consistent. We had to be loving, kind, and, um, and caring and open to listen. So when you come into an existing community as a turnaround in a turnaround effort, if you're not listening and learning from the community that's there before, trust is very difficult to build. Right. Thank you. And Pedro, uh, from a different perspective in the at the top of the central office. You know, I think for us, um, going back to, we you have to be very intentional. So in other words, uh, you know, I've always been really clear that, you know, I, you know, my, my the first level that I focused on was our principles um, with the, with the goal of knowing that our principles, you know, and this is before we got into partnership schools. This was even before we leveraged some of the tools from the state was to have the right leader at every school to have alignment around values and, and, and vision and where we were going. So that was the first real big task. And I'll tell you, that's where I made my biggest uh, investment in my first year. And I don't regret it. Uh, we made a lot of changes where we needed to make changes. Uh, I also elevated uh, some of our leaders that were sort of behind the scenes and really brought them to, to the top because they had always been good, good leaders, but they were sort of quiet. Um, and so, so that was, you know, doing that first, but then really for us, making it clear that everything we're doing is holistic. It wasn't just a particular school. It wasn't just a particular neighborhood. It was the entire district. So whether it was uh, changing the conversations at the state level with legislation, like, like uh, the partnership legislation, redesigning how uh, poverty is defined in Texas and attaching weights to it. So Texas is the first state in the country that had now adopted our poverty system that it's not just free and reduced lunch, it's income. It's whether the family owns a home or not, the educational level of the adults, or whether it's a two-parent household, and then attaching weights to density of poverty. Texas is the first state that's done that. It started, and that was in the 2019, like that we drove all of that in San Antonio, as well as making sure that we raised expectations and always with the values of that we're gonna empower principals and teachers we're going to have the community voice, which is why we, uh, it, it, may, it slows it down a little bit, but the reason, you know, we allow every school to decide whether they want to change their model, whether they want to become an in-district charter, whether they want to become a partnership school. We literally are the, the matchmakers. We literally match partners with the principal because for us, we always say, you know, I start with my principal. Once I'm bought into the principal, that person drives everything. And then it's a matter of values with the school model and that community. And so for us doing it that way, I've seen more scores, at, you know, more uh, results that are at scale. I've seen more buy-in. Now, I'll tell you the lesson that I've learned that I, I didn't do enough and, and we're learning from this. Uh, what I didn't copy from some of my charter uh, colleagues and competitors was they're, they're great marketing machines. And I've always, I was, you know, I just been the kind of the person that my team and I, we bring in a lot of talent, but we do the work. We literally put our heads on and we just get to work because that's just how, how we're wired. And we don't do enough marketing. Uh, so, you know, the insiders know, like the families at the schools know we have amazing positive surveys from parents. Uh, the business community loves us. You know, we're, we're pursuing the largest bond ever in the history of our county of 1.3 billion for this November. And November 3rd, you'll see what the results are of that. But that'll be the largest ever uh, bond election that we, that's ever been done in our county for our school district uh, and for the county overall. And so that would be a good test of where the community is with us. But I'll tell you, you know, we, the one thing I wish I would have learned more is just, you know, how to tell our story more. And David has done a good job coming in and trying to tell our story. Uh, so we just hired uh, 
what I call who the, the marketing machine of IDEA Public Schools. And IDEA, very strong charter system in Texas, but they're a great marketing machine. Well, guess what? I just hired the person who was the marketing machine. Uh, she just came, and she only wanted to work for one district, and that was San Antonio ISD. Um, so, so you know, we've learned how to how to take some of the best of other other operators and other organizations and bring them into our ecosystem. And so that's the biggest thing I would say, just as for any leader, you gotta you gotta start with what you have in mind, and it has to be bigger than a program or an initiative. It has to be bigger than an academic target. You have to decide that you're going to change the entire system and you're going to change the landscape for the population of children you're, you're trying to support. Yes, we heard the same thing from uh, the superintendent in uh, Indianapolis. The, the communication aspect is uh, we heard it from J Jamie Vanderwall in the in the portfolio office in Indianapolis. The communication just cannot be uh, overemphasized. Chris, I'm gonna switch gears just for you just a little bit and ask you to talk just a little bit more about the Denver Green Schools teacher-run model and how to engage teachers and teachers unions associations around the innovation schools um, you know, in general. You're muted. Sorry about that. The uh, so rarely do it to myself, so often others wished. But anyways, the, uh, you know, I think. Look, well, I think I'll rein you in because I have one more survey to get through before we're done. Uh, I'll. Uh, I think this approach. One of the reasons I am such a deep believer in it. It is such an empowering approach. It is so much about giving educators, both teachers and principals, the opportunity to have the level of voice they've never had in the critical decisions at their school. And I find virtually every educator chafes about that. Not every educator's ready to use that full range. Not every educator necessarily agrees with the model when you have a sort of tighter or clearer model at a school. So there's some issues to be addressed, but the level of uh, embrace that teachers and principals give when they get that choice is you know, pretty extraordinary. And I think that's what this bet is. It's a bet on agency more than anything else that the pe when people make a decision, um, they own it a ton more than when they're told an expert somewhere else has determined it for them. It matters what the quality of that decision is, and you got to refine those decisions. And I'm not, you know, dissing expertise. Um, that's a different webinar somewhere else. But I am saying it's a big difference whether you have that sense of ownership. So when it comes to, you know, teachers, as I mentioned earlier, for example, in Springfield, the teachers voted 93 to 7% to continue this really quite different deal. Um, you know, than the standard union deal that they have elsewhere in the district. And, you know, that's, uh, that's after three years of doing it. So that gives you a pretty good sense of what their enthusiasm is. I don't want to hide. There are politics here. There are many people in teachers unions and other uh, associated groups who are suspicious that this is some form of, you know, charter privatization is the term they choose to use. It's not one I, you know, I think charters are public schools, but I understand people can spend a lot of time debating the details of that. What I don't, I th what I think is unfortunate is when, you know, those kinds of big national fights sort of get, get in the way of the kind of innovation that an individual educator leader like Mariama or a, a strong district leader like Pedro want to do. So that's where I get excited. There are plenty of places in the United States where people do want to do things differently, not only at the bottom up, but at the district level. And I think if we make it a lot less about some cosmic fight about who runs things and far more about how do we get excited educators? So you mentioned the Denver Green School. I mean, it's a great example. This, this is not a model we brought to them. These people had this model. It was a shining star in Denver. 
but they wanted more of the resources and control over the resources and more autonomy to go further. So our contribution was merely helping them find the right contractual legal path by which to do that and to support them as they then were in a position to expand. And they believe so strongly in teacher voice that they have co-leaders co of the school who are teachers. Uh, I don't know that every school in our system, you know, set of zones around the country would want to do that or should do that. You know, I know it works really great for that school and for their students and for their expansion in Northfield. So, you know, part of this is really being willing to trust educators and uh, and then have the accountability procedures, David, you care about. And, the, you know, like that's very important. I don't disagree at all. Uh, but, the, you know, if you start from the point of view that you can't trust the educators, I really don't see how you get to the change you want to see, and especially at scale in this country. Okay, that was an excellent explanation. I am going to jump to the next survey. We're going to do this one fast because we're running out of time. And this is, what do you think would be the biggest impediment to creating innovation schools in your community? And the choices are money, central office control, fear of the unknown, fear of accountability, or apathy. And uh, while you're making your decision on that, we're going to take one more uh, question for, from the audience, um, which is it's a good one. Uh, how do innovation schools or zones address homelessness among students? And I'll let whoever wants to grab that one jump in first. I'll start off and I'll just say that in Indianapolis, uh, one of the most, all of our innovation schools have a neighborhood boundary. And so um, kids are honored wherever your neighborhood school is, regardless of where that child goes. Um, because of McKinney Vento, that child still belongs to that innovation school, if you will. And that innovation school has a responsibility to make sure that that student remains at their school and is transported. Now I will say as individual innovation schools, as we're set up in Indianapolis, it creates a challenge because we don't have the scale of the district transportation, those types of things. But the district has been a great partner to us as we've tried to navigate those situations as they come up. There are some innovation schools in Indianapolis that have a very high homeless population. And I know that they have partnered closely with the district to make sure those students remain with them. Great, Pedro, do you have anything to add to that? Just if not, I have another question for you. Yeah, just real quickly that, you know, part of the makeup of our schools, because we control enrollment and we control, uh, you know, what, how seats are provided. Uh, and so we prioritize all of our highest poverty families and it's based on the criteria that I described earlier. So the homeless children, our homeless children, which we have over 2000, uh, they're at the top. They pretty much get a pick of any school they want, uh, especially if they're coming from a school that's already failing, they get the first choice. And so they don't, they're not even on a waiting list. And so that for us is just all about access and equity. And of course we provide transportation as well as we have social workers that also support them. That's, that's awesome. That makes me wanna write an article just about that, that policy. Um, it's nice to see homeless children first in line for something. Um, so while I'm with Pedro, I, I would think that it would be uh, kind of scary for a superintendent uh, even one who's under a freshly renewed contract to cede uh, the kind of control that's necessary for these schools to have the true autonomy to really innovate. So for any superintendents or school leaders um, out there that are, that are watching, how do, you, how do you gird yourself for that? Well, the first thing I would say, Tristan, and, and I've learned some really good lessons, you know, I'm, I'm, I just turned 51 
and I realize that as I get older, I get a little bit wiser, I learn a little bit more. So number one is um, you have to understand as a superintendent who you're, you know, you got to first align yourself with your governance structure. So when I came to the district, I spent a lot of time having heart-to-heart -heart conversations with my trustees individually, together as a group, and we all had to agree what we wanted. Uh, once we agreed what our vision was, and then I pushed them very hard and I said, look, change is hard. So if you're gonna hesitate on any change, whether it's changing a principal, bringing in a partner, I need to know now because I have a lot of work. <laughs> we can move on. And so I, so Teresa, in my, now in my sixth year, I have not had one decision that wasn't a 7-0 vote with seven elected trustees. By the way, we have closed schools, we've redesigned schools, we have terminated staff for performance for the first time ever in the districts. Uh, we, we weren't terminating teachers in the past. We've changed policies that were very restrictive for principals in schools. And all, and by the way, with people with signs saying to fire me, trustees running, running for election where it was clear in the newspaper that it was about me. It wasn't about them. It was whether they supported me. And I'll tell you, Tressa, the, the biggest advice I'd give everybody is, you know, we are, when you're new to a community, you are a visitor. I don't care if you're there five years, 20 years, you didn't, if you weren't born there and you didn't then grow up there, you're a visitor. And so you have to remember that your board, the people that back you, whether it's your teachers or many of them, they're, they're from that community. And how, so did you, you how, did, how did you convey that same sense of, temp, of temporariness, if you will, with bureaucrats that are, have been entrenched in, in the central office maybe for decades? So Tressa, the number one thing is, and, and our trustees will tell you this, we always ground ourselves talking about children, no matter what. And so what's interesting is that when we get to any conversation, you and I may have a difference about an approach. You, we may have a difference about a decision, but then we go back to children and say, okay, so let's I use making that assumption based on what's best for children or something else. And we push each other, but I'll tell you, Tressa, it was my big, biggest advice, get your governing structure behind you because trust me, if you're a leader, and your governance structure is not behind you, you're not gonna be able to have sustainable results. And I realized that the number one job of any leader, whether you're the principal or you're the superintendent, is you gotta get your governance structure behind you. Because at the end of the day, you need them to have your back. And what I say to people is, because I'm not from the community, they become my, my conscience. They become, they're able to tell me like, oh, this, this is not gonna go well, Pedro. This is, and I just, and, you, and these are individuals that for me reflect the conscience of the community because you're always gonna have in, special interest groups for the, with their own agendas. So that's what I would say, Trish, is the number one thing. And like I said, I'm very proud that we have not had one vote that wasn't a seven no vote in our district, no matter how controversial it's been. That is a, a Guinness Book of World Record, <laughs> practically there. Trish, can I jump in with one thought on that? Sure, absolutely. I just, it's something I, I want to bring up because I think it's part of district change and improvement. You know, there's a lot of different strategies, but one of the really interesting things when autonomous schools have the choice whether to purchase services or not from the central office is two wonderful dynamics happen that I think are part of long-term change and a real strength to innovation schools or zones. One is they have to be priced out. Districts have to actually go through the math of understanding how much are we spending at central office on certain things? And you know, a price has to be established, which honestly has not often been done by districts as a core way of thinking about what they do. And then they have customers and those customers don't necessarily buy things. And one of the fascinating things I've seen in a couple of our districts that have more matured is it is very interesting and challenging, but also helpful when you're superintendent to discover that some of your schools don't wanna buy some of the services or at all or at the price point 
that the district's offered. And a good well, leader, and you got to well, have a great leader, what they challenge their own team to say is, hey, you need to, to meet these customers' expectations and make changes, right? And I think that's a really healthy dynamic for a district. Well, let's ask Mariama. Is there anything that is there? I think you might be muted. Yeah. Is there anything that Indianapolis wants to sell you that you're buying elsewhere because you can get a better deal or you get better customer service? Well, I can tell you that uh, that whole level of service challenge is something that we've been mitigating uh, as we've gone through this process. When our school opened five years ago, there were maybe four innovation schools. Now we're more than 20. So when we first opened, like so many, we were just trying to get the doors open, get the kids in and get started. As we've started to get to a point of critical mass, we now come together as operators around what's working and what's not working. And what we've seen as a result is the district step up a little bit more differently when it comes to being clear about what we're receiving, what that price is, and even now the push to service level agreements. So it's not- Can you give us an, an Can you give us an anecdote for people who are listening that may not really know fully what we're talking about? So uh, for example, when it comes to um, cafeteria services, that was one of the biggest ones when we first opened, uh, we're a dual language school, we're multicultural, we focus on um, global understanding, and we really wanted to look at having another service provider for lunch. And so we immediately started looking at other vendors. Now what's interesting is that the, the district had set up the, the, um, the kitchen, so they were all warming kitchens. So even though we had the opportunity to look at other vendors, it was really set up. So we had to stick with the district and we couldn't get anybody else because all they had was a warming kitchen. And so by lifting that as a concern, as future, as uh, additional innovation schools came in, the question became what is really negotiable and what has been set up to sound negotiable, but it's really not. Another that I can tell you about is our custodial services that you don't have to go with the district services for custodial, um, but, some chose not to and some chose to, but the, the, the hinge pin we found was if you choose to leave the district, making sure that there is district support and people that understand innovation within the, the larger system is important because there are people inside of the larger district that don't support innovation. And I think that's very difficult because for innovation op operators, we have to figure out who can you talk to that really is trying to help you get to the other side and who really wants to see innovation schools closed down? Because there's a question as to where does a central office employee fit if the central office becomes really just a service provider? So those challenges that we go through are, are things that we're still working out, but we're only year six in Indianapolis in the innovation space. But our push is being clear about the services we're receiving so that that way we can make wise decisions as to whether or not we buy in or, or we don't. Got it. So let's look at the uh, results from the last survey. And so we see that, uh, not surprisingly, central office control and fear of the unknown are the two uh, top ab tied for um, things that would be inhibitor. And that's why, that's why webinars like this are important and uh, papers like we are, we've produced at uh, Reinventing America's Schools, including the new guide are important um, because we, we hope that we can start uh, changing some hearts and minds around this because we know these schools are really working for um, low income, especially urban children. We are at the end of this webinar. I wish I have so many more questions. Will you all come back for another one another time?
Okay. Uh, I don't want to run over tonight because it's a historic night in America. The third woman vice presidential candidate is getting ready to take the stage in one minute. And I know everybody really uh, has their priorities in order and wants to see that. So I'll thank you all very much. Wish you all the very best of luck with your schools and your districts and your advocacy as the school year continues. Thanks so much for joining us. Good night. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.